All right, welcome back everybody to another episode of Liberty Alliance Network's What Can We Do? I'm Haley Heathman and today I am pleased to be joined by Sarah Thompson. Sarah Thompson is a repeat guest and I had her on several episodes ago. She is a homeopathy, uh, a homeopath, sorry, homeopath from Maine. And I had her on many episodes ago, not so much to talk about homeopathy, but to talk about the activism portion of what's going on in Maine with regards to COVID and also about, generally speaking, homeopathic or alternative um, systems of medicine outside of the allopathic traditional model that we are seeing that was failing us and still is. And if you're fortunate enough to view it on Rumble, it's still available on Rumble. Unfortunately, I did try to convert some of my earlier podcasts into uh, or videos and interviews into podcast format. And um, it wasn't until recently that I realized the one that I converted with Sarah only has me speaking. So um, uh, unfortunately, you only heard a one-sided conversation and <laughs> I had to delete it. So you can still go back on Rumble to check out our previous um, interview. It's about the goings-on in Maine and how they were combating the COVID mania up there. Um, but I did want to go in depth with this, and I'll post that in the show notes page too. All the, all the, everything can be found in the show notes at thereallianceNetwork.com slash what can we do. But without further ado, I want uh, to introduce Sarah, and Sarah has become a good friend of mine um, since our last conversation, and I have learned so much more about homeopathy since we spoke. You know, I was pretty much I had the bare bones understanding, and since then I've been fascinated and digging in and putting it into practice and joining her webinars. And I'm just so excited to talk strictly about homeopathy today and the healing power of homeopathy. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Haley. Thank you so much. I am really excited to be here and I always love to talk about homeopathy. <laughs> Yay. So just, we talked about touched on it a little bit on our last show, but in case anybody missed it, just briefly give us your background. Yeah. So I mean, the big story of my background in all of this starts really with uh, my diagnosis with acute myeloid leukemia in 2010, which is when I was first introduced to homeopathy. But my background in this work as a professional um, goes back about uh, five years when I started my practice. My background is uh, I went to Baylight Center for Homeopathy. I've been to the Academy for Homeopathic Education. I'm a member of the Maine Association of Homeopaths. I'm a registered homeopath, and I'm a member of the, uh, I'm a certified homeopath. So although, all these credentials, and definitely not into credentialism, but I have the credentials. <laughs> and uh, so that's my background, and I have a practice as a homeopath, and then I also bring in shamanic work and energy work and some more coaching style work into my practice, and then the webinars. Yeah, and you've uh, you've been expanding your business in the last several months as well. Yeah, I, tell me what is it? Tell me about the process it takes. Um, and I know you know credentialism, sure, but tell me about like what the process is, the education, the the um, uh, schooling it takes to become a homeopath, and uh, what you have to go through. Yeah, well, I can tell you what I went through. Which was, in some ways, I as everything I do is a little bit eclectic, and this path was eclectic too, because I, in general, 
a lot of homeopathy schools uh, have historically been, there'll be one master homeopath and they start a program. And so when you go to that school and you study, um, you're studying under that homeopath. And so I did that program, which was a, I did a, a four-year program, um, which only met on the weekends. It'd be all day on the weekends. Um, where I was studying under Master Homeopath, and we were studying all of the history, the theory, uh, um, a large swath of what's called the Materia Medica, which are the remedies, and then also either observing clinical or learning to take cases, bringing in practice clients, and having that whole clinical component. And then in order to round out that process for myself, I also sought out a number of other homeopaths and studied with them. And then I did an intensive clinical. Uh, that was what I did through the Academy of Homeopathic Education, where I was doing um, you know, hundreds of hours of just clinical work. And uh, then also then you bring in um, supervisors into your own practice uh, and do practicum. So there's a full swath of you go through the academic, you go through the practical, and you go through the practicum. Um, and then it's also school of life. You're just out there doing it, calling other practitioners, saying, I'm stumped on this. How do right. I solve the problem? Do, there's, and there's a ton of continuing ed. Yeah. That's the academic path. How long does it take? Uh, I mean, you know, med school takes what, eight years or more usually? I mean, I, I don't think homeopathic school takes that long. So how long did it take to kind of go through that process? Well, it depends because most people who go to homeopathy school do it part-time. Very few people are able to drop everything and go full-time, and there are very few full-time programs. Um, most homeopaths who are teaching are all, also have practices as well. So in my case, it was uh, four years in one program, two years in another program, and then a lot of other coursework and seminars kind of worked around that. There's another academic program that goes for about three years that I'm hoping to start next fall. So there's a way in which you're always in school, but I would say that the fastest, the fastest you can do it is two years. There is a two-year program, but I wouldn't have felt fully cooked in under four years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Why don't you go ahead? Because what was interesting in my accountability group, and we were talking about you and you know what you do and homeopathy, and Jeremy's my coach in that too, and mm -hmm. everything. And um, I know people won't know who that is or what we're talking about, <laughs> but some people were saying they don't even know what homeopathy is. And sure. one of the other guys in the group, he thought he knew and he didn't. And he goes, wow, you know, and he's actually like a copywriter and marketer. So my question is, explain what homeopathy is for those who don't know. And then maybe go into, does homeopathy have a marketing problem? <laughs> well, the part of the marketing problem is the is in the challenge of answering the first question mm -hmm. because homeopathy is well first and foremost it is a complete system of medicine in the same way that Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine are a complete system of medicine. It has a whole philosophy of uh, disease and health and what tools you use to bring the person from a state of disease into a state of health. 
in the case of homeopathy, that that tool is the homeopathic remedy, which is a potentized substance. Homeopathic remedies are made from thousands of different natural substances, but they all go through um, a very specific kind of processing, which is actually overseen by the FDA. There is something called the Homeopathic Pharmacopeia of the U.S., which uh, very carefully constrains the manufacture process of homeopathic remedies. They are well known in general for being diluted because they go through a process of being crushed and then put into tincture form. But the dilution process is only half of the story because they also go through a process of something called succussion, which is an agitation under very high impact. And that repeated process of dilution and succussion, for whatever reason, is the process that yields this different kind of healing agent from it's different from an herb, it's different from a supplement, it's different from a pharmaceutical drug, it's extremely gentle, and it has uh, healing properties that are sometimes different from the crude form of the substance. And then we have different applications of those remedies based on what the person presents as a symptom picture. So we're looking at, well, what is asking to be cured in this case? And then what homeopathic remedy best matches that exact profile of symptoms? That's the homeo part that they have to match. And then when the immune system is introduced to the remedy substance, what happens is that the immune system itself is what turns on the healing process. So it's a two-part process. Instead of the drug acting on the body in the way that a pharmaceutical drug does, or even the way um, sometimes a naturopathic supplement will do, the homeopathic remedy is, is stimulating the innate healing process of the individual. So that's a nutshell. Yeah. And uh, that, that goes, you know, the etymology of it, homeo-like like cures like. So, um, and that is, um, at odds with your traditional medical allopathic medicine where they go the opposite way. They want to, they, rather than like supporting, like they, and it makes sense on its face, but it's like, they want to do the opposite. So if you're presenting with, uh, whatever symptom you want to get rid of it. So you, they're mm -hmm. trying to go the opposite way. And so, hey, if you have a fever, we want to bring it down. If you have a, and I'm just talking like acutes. Sure. You know, or if you have a cold and you've got a runny nose, you want to dry it up kind of thing. Absolutely. And that's not quite how it works in homeopathy. Why don't you explain how that works? Sure. Yeah. So... In homeopathy, what we're trying to do is to bring the body through its process of healing in an expressive as opposed to suppressive way. So if you think about a the course of a cold, a cold running its course, in homeopathic practice, what we want to do is run the course of the cold as fast and as gently as possible with as few symptoms along the way. But instead of trying to just sort of piecemeal push back the mechanical process in the body, homeopathy is trying to bring the body through into a stronger state, having healed from that disease state, kind of in the way that 
we think of sort of tension and resistance in our lives is what we go through to have our hero's journey and to achieve our own inner kind of fiber. We want the body to get the benefit of the healing process, but also to get through it as quickly and gently as possible. And so sometimes when you take a homeopathic remedy, it doesn't instantly make the symptom go away. Sometimes your nose will run more for a little bit, but the idea is to have it move through faster and completely, as opposed to having a suppression where people will often experience a recurrence of symptoms. Right. That happened to me recently, and I I even texted you about it because I, I was having a cold and you know, one of my symptoms was a runny nose and I was doing pretty well for most of the day. And then all of a sudden at night that evening, like it was like a faucet had been, you know, and I'd been taking the remedy kind of throughout the day as needed, but all of a sudden it was like a faucet open and my nose was just like running. I was like, well, does this mean my remedy is working or does this mean it's not working? And I wasn't sure. And you said to stick with it. And then literally it was like, that was it. it. It got, finally, it was like that gush of whatever it needed to get out of my body. And I was able to go to sleep that night and not have a stuffy nose and runny nose, but it was like, it, it just got it all out. All yeah. one, <laughs> So, but that's, what's kind of confusing too, I think in homeopathy is trying to figure out, well, is this working and is it not? So what does a we'll talk again, we'll mostly do acutes and we'll touch on chronics. But so when, when it's working, what does it look like? How, how do you know it's working? Well, so that's, that is part of the, the art and the science of homeopathy. How do you know it's working? So when we see what's sometimes called an aggravation, an exacerbation of the matching symptom that intensifies that is usually a good indication that there, there is a vital response happening. And what, there are a couple of things we can do when we see that. If it's cold and it's a runny nose and we just see an intensification of the runny nose, that's not too problematic, can usually just support that and let it run through its course. If it's something that gets really dramatic, we can do a redose of the remedy or dilute it further. There are ways to... Uh, ameliorate the aggravation because we do want it always to be as gentle as it possibly can be. And when you say, just to clarify, uh, I want you to continue, but dilute it further, but in homeopathy, Mm -hmm. diluting it further, doesn't that mean make it stronger? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's a little bit tricky. Every time you dilute and agitate the remedy, you do make it somewhat stronger, but the, but a higher level of dilution can also make a more gentle application. So for instance, you can take a 30C remedy in two ounces of water, four ounces of water, or 16 ounces of water, and it's a 30C every time, but that 16 ounce dilution can be a little bit gentler. So if a if a dry pellet of the 30C causes an exacerbation temporarily, we might go to that big dilution to kind of ease ease the situation. And the other thing is humility is a huge piece of the puzzle because if I recommend a remedy and we repeat it a couple of times and things aren't getting better or they're only getting worse, at some point it is part of my job to say, maybe this isn't working. 
let's take a break from this remedy, give it a couple hours, try something else. And one of the really eye-opening things for me is that when I really realized the best way to explain that homeopathy works is to talk about the fact that it doesn't always, if you give the wrong remedy, nothing happens. And if it were just a question of placebo in the most conventional sense, then it wouldn't matter what remedy you gave, you would get a response. Um, but if you've done any experimenting, which you have at this point with acutes, you do find that you'll get one remedy that maybe does something but not enough, another remedy that doesn't do anything at all, another remedy that completely closes the case. Um, and this was my own experience when I had, I was formally diagnosed with Lyme, but I did have some symptoms that uh, had a lot of indication of that kind of tick-borne illness, terrible swelling in my legs. I couldn't sleep. I was an awful moving, you know, pains moving throughout my body. And, uh, you, you know, the, the stiffness in the joints, all the things that people associate with Lyme and co-infections. And I went to my homeopath and she gave me a remedy and it helped, but uh, not enough. I didn't really feel fully better. And so I went back to her and she gave me a different remedy and it was completely curative. And uh, that, that was the most eye-opening thing for me because I thought, well, if it can not work, then that means there's a difference between remedies. Um, that was well before I was a, pre a student or a practitioner myself. And I think one of the objections too, or, you know, when people say, oh, it's the placebo effect, I think one of the ways you overcome that too, I, I think what you said is really good. Also, and as I have found throughout this journey is that homeopathy can work on most animals. So mm -hmm. I work with dogs. And so, you know, dogs, they, they don't experience a placebo effect. They don't know what that is or, or, you know, other sentient animals, cats, horses, right. things like that. There's no sentient, you know, there's no um, placebo effect with animals. It works on animals and it's not just because they give you a pill and the animal mm. knows, oh, I'm getting a pill. I must be getting better. They have no idea. So that's how I think another way, and you've said even recently in your recent webinar that it works with plants, which is crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Totally crazy. How, right. does, how does it work with plants? Well, the vital, whatever the vital action is of any living organism is going to respond to a remedy that essentially has a harmonic for the disease state. And so if you have a plant, for instance, that has gotten frostbite, you leave a plant out and it gets too cold, you can give it a, a dilution, just put some a remedy in a solution of agaricus, which is a remedy that is made from um, uh, a mushroom, agaricus muscari, which is a remedy for frostbite in humans. And you can see the often what will happen uh, because plants can drop their bits in a way that humans can't that the disease tissue just falls off but there's new healthy growth that comes through underneath um, and there are I'm not in any way an expert in agrohomeopathy but there are definitely people who are and it's one of the places where a lot of work is being done right now because there isn't as much resistance as there is in medicine for people yeah. So. Yeah. And since I've started this journey, so part of the the way I found out even that homeopathy, because you didn't mention it, but I found it out when, because you helped my mom. And when I was researching the remedy for my mom and where to get it, 
I saw that online there, you know, you could go to like 1-800-PET-MEDS. I was like, pet meds, what? You can, <laughs> you can give this stuff to dogs, what? And so that, you know, piqued my interest even more. I became even more fascinated. Like, what? Are you kidding me? And it fascinated me because even before I knew about homeopathy, you know, I work with dogs. I'm in the pet industry um, as a dog trainer. And so, you know, I see the behavioral issues. And of course, there is some overlap between behavior and health, you know, physical health mm-hmm. and everything. Absolutely. And seeing kind of the same patterns start to emerge within the veterinary circles where it's been co-opted and maybe dare say corrupted, particularly with, with regards to food. You know, the, the, the kibble that we give our, our pets is awful. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about like nutrition and diet and health. Well, we call kibble like the fast food equivalent of (laughs) nutrition and health. It's easy, it's convenient, but there's very little nutrition in there. And you're starting to see lots of chronic ailments develop because, you know, we've replaced real food with Mm -hmm. a poor alternative, uh, a food-like product that they want to market. And, you know, it's becoming like what I mentioned is uh, uh, the what the pet food industry is to your veterinarian is like what the pharmaceutical industry is to your doctor. There's a lot of collusion. Mm. There's a nice cozy relationship there where the pet food industry even sponsors the textbooks that they learn out of. The only actual education they get about uh, nutrition comes directly from the food, the pet food conglomerates. They pay for Mm -hmm. their scholarships. They, they get the office equipment. That's why you go into your vet's office and you see shelves full of Hills science diet and everything. And when you look in the ingredients, it's actually some of the worst food out there. So there, there's a connection. So I see the same things happening in the veterinarian world that I see happening in the conventional medicine mm-hmm. world, you know, where they're not solving yeah. the problem and what they're doing probably is exacerbating it. Um, and so I've kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm in both worlds, of course, for the human camp, because, you know, I'm a human, I've got a family, my daughter going through all the child, well, you know, not the major ones, but your typical colds and flus sure. for, for kids. So I like both, but I've really been diving in into the, the, the veterinary side too, because I think we need this. And I think people need to know it too, for their own animals, animals, these pets are part of our family. We love them. We care for them. We want to, we want the best for them. And yet we're seeing with our pets, the same continuation of chronic disease Mm -hmm. and chronic illness in our pets that we are experiencing ourselves. Why don't you take a minute to talk about the chronic ailments and how homeopaths view chronic ailments versus maybe your conventional doctors? Sure. So fundamentally on principle, chronic ailments and acute ailments are, the homeopathic principles are the same. The principle of the minimum effective dose, the principle of matching the remedy to the symptoms, um, the principle of getting a complete individualized uh, case and the principle of looking at the total symptom picture. And uh, what is different is the pace and the complexity. So with a chronic disease state, 
And a chronic disease state does not have to be what we necessarily think of as a deep chronic. It doesn't have to be rheumatoid arthritis. It can just be any sustained state of suboptimal health. I mean, one of the questions that I always want to make sure that I get a clear understanding of the answer to when I'm working with anyone is, when were you last in what you consider to be a state of optimal health? And sometimes people will say, really never. Sometimes they'll go back to their teens. Sometimes they'll go back to their 20s. It Occasionally, it's just a few years ago, but usually when you ask that question, people start to dig in. They think, well, actually, I've had something that was a little off in some way for a really long time. So when you're looking at a situation like that and you're looking at what we call a chronic constellation or complex disease, and it doesn't have to be any big complicated thing in the sense that it doesn't have to be a zillion different symptoms. It can just be, well, you know, I get chronic sinus infections. And I have my whole life, or I'm desperately allergic to ragweed, and it means I can only live in certain places. You know, all those things constitute a chronic state. And so, just as with an acute, I am trying to get a complete understanding of the whole symptom picture. But in this case, the whole symptom picture is going to include a much larger understanding of everything about the mental, the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual state of the whole period for which this disease state has been presenting itself. And then to try to, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff, figure out what's important, figure out what is asking to be cured at this time. Sometimes you have multiple things on top of each other and you kind of have to tease them apart. And then giving a remedy and the the timing of recovery is much more uneven than in an acute and usually longer. And then there are certain kinds of situations where I want to see certain things improve very quickly because they concern me uh, or because they should move fast because they're a very superficial part of the state. And then there are other kinds of situations where I know we're looking at the body needing to do a deep replacement of a lot of cellular structure, but now it's going to be doing that from the place of health. Uh, it's still going to take the time for all of that cellular replacement to happen before we really see the improvement fully manifest. So it's it's a difference of degree, but it can be many, many degrees. Yeah. And I think that's what separates the homeopathic from the allopathic too, is with allopathic, we want immediate results. And, and the way that they get immediate results is they, they give you a pill and it usually suppresses the symptoms so mm-hmm. that you feel like you've gotten better. Right. But really true cure takes much longer. It takes about as long as it does to manifest almost. It didn't happen overnight. So you're not going to get rid of it overnight um, because it's a process. Is that correct? Yeah. So we have a very rough rule of thumb and it is very rough because it totally depends. But we say a month of active cure for every year of disease. So, um, and sometimes people think, oh my God, well, in a way, I've been sick for 40 years. Does that mean that I have to meet with you every month for 40 months? And um, you can if you want to. But uh, no, usually just what that means is that there will be ebbs and flows in the arc of healing. And it may be a couple of years before you look back and say, I'm in the best, best health of my life. 
it doesn't mean it's going to be a couple of years before you feel better. Uh, but the level of, of, of healing that we're always trying to go to is the deepest state of healing that that person's vital force can achieve. And unless someone has pretty profound organic pathology or a really difficult situation in their environment that really keeps them from healing, uh, people can heal to a level of uh, vitality that uh, a lot of people just sort of say isn't possible once you get to a certain age. And that has not been true at all in my observation. Yeah. Yeah. And so I want to take a moment. This is a deviation from what I normally do because obviously, you know, you got me started on this and I've, and you recommended lots of different resources. And then, like I said, I'm interested in the animal side of things too. So I got a book about um, homeopathic care for cats and dogs, small doses for small animals. And what I like about this book, I'm going to hold it up for the the viewer, for the viewers. Even though this is for dogs and cats, this book so far that I have read, and I'm sure that you have many more that go into it, but at least for the lay person, I will say, mm-hmm. has given the best treatise of what it actually, what cure is and what disease is and a different mm-hmm. understanding. And maybe, you know, a lot of people maybe already know this. And I think I already knew this too on some sort of, you know, subconscious level, but this really spelled it out for me. And it just made so much sense. It was one of those like profound truths that like hits you in the face. Like, oh my God, absolutely. It just makes so much sense. So I want to take a minute to read a couple passages from this book. And then I want you to comment on, and then if, especially if there's any differences, crucial differences between, you know, maybe what you could expect from a human versus an animal. But um, I think largely it's the same, but if you want to point anything out, you can, but just bear with me while I read some passages and it's about the nature of disease. So let's say it says, let's uh, let's look at the more typical progression of disease to understand how the body reacts to illness. Once disorder affects the physical body, the vital force follows some patterns so that damage is minimized. The nature of the reaction is that outer regions and less critical organs take the brunt of disease as long as possible. Additionally, whenever possible, functional disorders occur rather than pathological changes. Functional disorders include fever, discharges like vomiting, diarrhea, and mucus production, and even convulsions, bodily responses that can be accomplished through increased activity of normal bodily processes. By contrast, pathological disease involves altering the physical structure of the body. Uh, For example, the intestinal thickness of inflammatory bowel disease, calcium deposits, formation of tumors. So the first signs of illness in young, relatively healthy animals are functional, generally fever and discharges. Think of children with their common symptoms of runny noses, diarrhea, and fevers. The stronger the vital force, the overall health, the greater the portion of disease force that can be diverted into functional symptoms. It also, this explains why children and young animals often run such high fevers. It also explains why administration of Aspirin to reduce fevers can result in Reyes syndrome. We compel the vital force to retreat to a deeper level of illness, pathology. Tolerance of intense functional disorder is actually a sign of health. As long as the body can utilize functional changes to heal illness, the disease can move more swiftly through the body. 
Once pathological change becomes necessary, the vital force tries to localize the disease and restrict the illness to less vital organs. The most obvious choice is the skin, a necessary organ, but one that can tolerate a lot of damage and still provide basic functions. After dogs and cats pass through the age of functional disease, as their disease force increases, they begin showing illness on their skin. The suppression of these skin symptoms by administration of drugs will be followed by deeper illness unless the vital force can return the focus of disease to the skin once the drugs are stopped. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So exactly, exactly how I was taught it and in, in the Hanumanian tradition. The, and this is, so this brings up a question of, of skin issues, just as an aside too. There are two kinds of skin issues. There are skin issues that are truly superficial. And then there are skin issues that are indicative of a deeper imbalance. And that's where the vital force is putting the issue. When it's really just a superficial skin thing, we can usually move it through pretty fast because as that text points out, that is the, the safest layer in the body system. It's the most superficial layer. It's the place, it's the, it's the last stop. Things get thrown off from there. But most of the time for modern Westerners anyway, anything that's on the skin is indicative of something deeper. And so when the primary complaint, what we call the chief complaint in homeopathy, is a skin condition, it is a slower process because the healing has to go down to the deepest level of where there is dysfunction and start moving that out so that it's not in the liver, it's not in the bone, it's not in the lungs. And so, for instance, eczema. Uh, I have often been told that nurses know that, that children that have eczema often grow up to have asthma, and this is considered to be uh, kind of a natural progression. From a homeopathic standpoint, what we observe is that children that have eczema are often given suppressive medications for the eczema. If you don't do that, then the disease state doesn't go into the respiratory system. But if the disease stays in the respiratory system, if a child has asthma and eczema and the parent comes to me and I'm going right for the asthma, the eczema is secondary, that disease state is deeper, that's in the lungs, the, the, I need to see an improvement in the airflow before I see improvement on the skin. If I see improvement on the skin before I see improvement on the airflow, that's the wrong direction. And that would be a case of using homeopathy suppressively. And when that can happen, and it's not a big deal, it's pretty rare unless you're working with, there are some people who practice homeopathy where they give a lot of remedies at one time and high potencies and many repetitions. But if you were to treat something superficially acutely over and over and over and over and over again that wasn't truly an acute, that's a place where you could actually see homeopathy be suppressive because you would not be going to the deepest state. So yes, I completely concur with that. We're going to, that's why, uh, you know, deep organic pathology is the kind of the, the most challenging, the slowest to move, but also where I need to see the most improvement most quickly, uh, because that's where you start to see organic tissue change, which can reverse with homeopathy, not always, but it definitely can. And then 
moving outwards. So a liver condition is more serious than a lung condition is more serious than a skin condition. So then, because I have a had a close friend who suffered from mm, moderate to severe psoriasis, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. plaque psoriasis on the on the elbows and on the knees in particular, a couple patches elsewhere. Um, and he tried everything. Well, I won't say everything, but especially, and I, I guess this could get into the difference between like a naturopath versus a homeopath, because mm-hmm. the way sure. the naturopath would treat it pr- presumably, or what they kind of did. Okay. Well, maybe you need to eliminate gluten from your diet. Maybe it's an intolerance to gluten. Try this sure. natural cream, try coconut oil, etc. And none of it worked. So, you know, maybe it could have not to say not to say it never would or couldn't. But if somebody came to you with a similar problem, maybe that was their chief complaint was, Mm -hmm. I've got uh, psoriasis, and it just Mm -hmm. won't go away. Nothing I try works. How would you approach that? Yeah, yeah. And I've certainly had some psoriasis cases in my practice and other kinds of uh, skin issues like that. Well, so first of all, I'm going to get the entire case. Uh, when I take a case, I allow two hours for a primary intake for adults. I allow two hours always with children. It usually takes less time. Sometimes with adults, it takes less time too, but, uh, I allow all that time just so, you know, one of the things that is generally the case if someone has never worked with a homeopath is that they've never had the opportunity to have someone listen until they're done talking about everything that's ever been wrong. And there's something, it's not, it's not a 10 minute appointment and then you're out the door. No, it is not. So, and sometimes there is, you know, sometimes there are, there can be environmental things, like certainly uh, an allergy or a sensitivity. That's that stuff is real. Mold in the household can be a real problem. An abusive relationship that the person can't get out of, that you know, is a, what we call an obstacle to cure. But and most people into, wouldn't, yeah. and most people wouldn't associate that though. They mm-hmm. wouldn't think that, hey, my my mental or my uh, you know emotional state is affecting my health, or that it would be an effect uh, be causing or partially causing my psoriasis or something. Right. Yeah. And so that's an important part of what I'm looking at. It's not that I'm driven by what the mental state of the client is, but I'm looking at the overall pattern of dynamic response. And so sometimes the way I'll explain this to, to somebody is to use an example. Like if you have, psori- if somebody has psoriasis, I want to know their body, their whole being reacts in a certain way to a situation. And different people can develop psoriasis who have a different pattern of reaction. So one person can develop psoriasis where their pattern of reaction is to feel, and you I'm sure see this with animals, to feel guilty, to feel ashamed, to hide. Somebody might feel fearful. Somebody might feel angry. Somebody might get violent. All of those different ways of responding, dynamic response, are going to go into which remedy I look at. Because all all substances, homeopathic or not, have any drug, any medicine that people take, and this is really true of pharmaceutical drugs, they're just called side effects, but they're just effects of the drug, does have an effect on the mental state. And my observation with pharmaceutical drugs is that the effect on the mental state is almost always negative. And that, to me, is a really powerful information because 
the state of internal mental and emotional and spiritual well-being is so important to health that somebody can be missing a limb and be in optimal health if they are whole and spiritually, mentally, and emotionally secure, complete. Somebody can have nothing wrong with them on the outside, but be a mess on the inside, and they are not in a healthy state. And so it all of that would go into what I did with psoriasis. I want to know what other symptoms are showing up. Does the person have constipation? Does the person have acne? Does the person have heart palpitations? All of these things go into understanding what's happening. And then I'm going to give a remedy and I'm going to match the potency and the frequency of dosing and all of those things to where I think the vital force is in terms of its healing process. And I'm not going to be surprised if the psoriasis either doesn't move right away or gets a little angrier or a little thicker or goes through a process of shedding. Uh, I just want to see is there movement and improvement on the deepest state of health? Is something happening? Is there forward progress in this person's healing? And that's, that's what I'm trained to look for. And that's the core of, of my job. And once AI can learn to do it, I'm going to have to find something else to do. Yeah. Well, I want AI or, or actually, and you can tell me later if there's a, if there's like an app to do case taking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, I think there is. I, I, and I think probably to a large extent you can do that with acutes. Yeah. I have yet to see that work with a chronic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so going back to the psoriasis thing though, I think a lot of people would think of like a psoriasis or something, maybe a dermatitis, I don't know, maybe Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. like a relatively minor issue and that it probably shouldn't take such a long time to clear up. When you see somebody that's got like a um, chronic plaque psoriasis, mm-hmm. in your mind, are you thinking, uh-oh, this could be a tough case because you you know that it probably indicates a deeper level of illness than what they actually think that they are? Or is this sure. like, uh, you know, yeah, this this should be pretty easy. What's your thought? Yeah, well, so it totally depends on what else is going on. Right. It totally depends on where the where the client is and in, in their commitment to the process. That I never the only time I ever think uh-oh is when a client is in a situation in their life where I think it's going to be extremely difficult for them to heal because of circumstances that appear to be on beyond their control particularly uh, an unhealthy home situation, or if they aren't open to communicating with me and being somewhat surrendering to the process. I'm not a control freak. I'm not anybody's boss. I'm definitely here to be a support and an attendant to the process, but I do need to bring my expertise to the table. And if somebody doesn't want to do what I'm suggesting, it can make it really hard to move forward. Otherwise, I'm not scared of anything. Perhaps that's like naivete and someday I will be, but people will come to me really fearful because they have a big constellation of symptoms and they think they've been made to believe that they're broken in a way that the doctors will say, well, 
this is just, you've got to live with this. Nobody can help you. You're stuck with this. And so, um, people start to feel like I'm, I'm broken. My disease state is overwhelming and they'll, and they'll be, you know, near tears. Like, have you ever worked with something like this? Isn't this so crazy? And those cases do not scare me because if a person is really committed to healing and can make, and this is where the naturopathy can come in, sometimes can make some external changes that might need to happen that, you know, I, just have such a deep faith. And it really is a faith in the ability of the vital, the vital force wants to be well. It's just stopped where it's stuck because it doesn't have any more tools. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, it might take a long time and it might not. I definitely don't make promises on timeline. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, I just think that I, I guess because let's put it this way. I think that they're not as simple as people think that they are the skin issues, you know, and and I say that, you know, Oh, it's just a skin ailment. It's not like I'm dying, you know? So people think, Oh, it's just a skin ailment, but sometimes, you know, it's embarrassing depending on where it's at. And, uh, you know, no, I'm not dying from it, but it's persistent. And, you know, maybe I can't wear short sleeves or I have to wear Mm -hmm. a hat or something like that. And, sometimes it's not just a skin issue. It's because the the body is depositing the disease in Mm -hmm. the skin where it can hold more of that dysfunction. Right. And what we're seeing too, one of the biggest issues with dogs, I know dogs, I'm, I may be Mm -hmm. cats too, but that I see, and I experienced it too, as a dog owner is skin ailments in dogs. They are Mm -hmm. prolific. And Mm -hmm. the problem is, is that they never go away. They'll give Mm. you a steroid to clear it up and it might work for a little bit, but then it comes raging back and then you have to give Mm. a stronger steroid and then yada, yada, but it never cures the Mm -hmm. ailment. And I think that's the difference between um, homeopathy and allopathy is that there is no cure. It just is a continuation of suppressing and covering up the actual disease. And the book that I was reading that I showed everybody, The Homeopathic Care, he actually started his um, journey as a veterinarian. He went through conventional veterinary school and became Mm -hmm. very disillusioned after spending years in practice about how he, you know, he would constantly see the same dogs and the same ailments coming back and back and back. And he wasn't able to cure them or, you know, Mm -hmm. like, why am Mm -hmm. I still seeing this? And he actually, and he spent a good treatise on the back talking about vaccinations and how he mm-hmm. thinks that our pets are over-vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sure, I'm certain that there is a another parallel in the human universe too, where what we have done is that because the vaccination in a way suppresses what would normally be a functional disease that is normally going to clear itself out. Mm-hmm. And see, and go through its course, and is in many cases not all, many cases not fatal. Mm-hmm. That we are suppressing that, and then it turns into we we're trading these acute illnesses for a lifetime of chronic disease, whether that is within your pets or within our human health. Is yeah, and you know, so this is I I love that you're raising this question because I know that when my uh, my children, one of whom just turned 17 today, and uh, the other one is 13, that when they were babies, and I was looking at the vaccine issue, 
what I tended to find was that there was this mentality, even among people who were not choosing to vaccinate their children, there was this mentality that you were either vaccinating or not. But those were the only two options when dealing with what we call the childhood illnesses. And uh, and I think, uh, and I, you alluded to this, we recognize there's a difference between some diseases that we vaccinate for and others. But what uh, what has bothered me is that when the vaccine program became the be-all and end-all for childhood diseases, instead of, first of all, instead of anybody asking is there any benefit to the immune system of the individual and maybe also of the species, evolutionarily speaking, to going through the, t- the stress of this disease in the system? Is there a benefit to that? Should we figure out what that is before we just make it go away? And is there a way that we can reduce or virtually eliminate morbidity and mortality from some of these diseases without any of the potential issues of vaccination. And because it just became all about vaccines, no one was willing to dive into what some of these other deep modalities might be able to do for those disease states. And homeopathic treatment of pertussis, measles, mumps, rubella, the uh, acute flaccid paralysis, Guillain-Barre, all of these disease states, chickenpox, if I didn't mention that one, uh, all the herpes viruses, the varicellas, homeopathic treatment of these diseases existed. And as long as those diseases have existed, and as long as homeopathy has existed, there's been a homeopathic approach to them. And that homeopathic approach is always involving strengthening the vital force of, we're talking about children or animals, strengthening the vital force and allowing it the opportunity to grow and evolve through the dynamic tension of the disease state without being harmed by it. And it's kind of like another aspect of safetyism. It's like the biological side of safetyism to never let an organism go through the stress of disease to just immediately head off everything that looks like symptoms, we pay a price. And I sometimes wonder if some of the pathological, and I don't use that word lightly, pathological behavior we see in some of the younger generations is a direct result of having had all of their physical pathology completely suppressed. It's, you know, sometimes I look at these, this inability to integrate different ideas, different ways of looking at the world, the inability to hold multiple ideas at one time and weigh them against each other or, or have faith in something as very similar to the way that a lot of conventional medicine, uh, the conventional pediatrics has been certainly for the past 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I think that's really important what you just said too, because it brings to mind, you know, talking about, hey, suppressing, you know, all the symptoms and we have to get rid of it as soon as possible. And because I have read and uh, I don't know where, so maybe if you've heard differently, but (laughs) I have read that with childhood you know, basic illnesses, but oftentimes Mm -hmm. like your child being sick is followed up by a leap in mental Mm -hmm. development. 
Absolutely. And so if we continue to suppress those illnesses, if that's forming it, doing a function where, hey, we're getting rid of the old so that we can usher in the new, Mm -hmm. both physically and mentally and emotionally, then yes, we are, again, suppressing our natural Mm -hmm. processes of the body. And perhaps you're right that there is um, something to be said for that where it feels like that the current generations, the, you know, Gen Z, and, you know, millennials to an extent are not just physically, but mentally very sick. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you see an uptick in just all these like anxiety, anxious behaviors. Yeah, that's and, what the stats show. Right. That they're not well. No, no. And I think, too, you know, it's not just the physical side of things. There's a lot of reasons for it. Mm-hmm. But sure. I think that there is something to be said for that. Yeah about what happens when you suppress rather than support the mm-hmm. disease state or the state of mind, kind of what you, what homeopathy tries to do. Well, and, you know, our, our first and primary connection was through the libertarian world. And one of the things that, to me, this medicine on so many different levels uh, is the the metaphors are all over those two worlds. Because when we are looking at a problem from a libertarian perspective, we're always looking at what is an organic dynamic state of a healthy society? And how do we help get things out of the way of the organic dynamic process, as opposed to putting band-aids at every layer on this societal ill, this economic ill? We say, what is the And we recognize that it's a dynamic state, that it's an in-motion state. There's a back and forth. There's no static place of social health. There's no static place of physical health. It's to support a dynamic state. And so I have, you know, I was struck early on by those parallels in terms of a principles-driven system of health. Yeah. And yeah, because, you know, we, as libertarians, we look at government as force and Mm -hmm. often force that is counter to how you would act in an otherwise free environment. How would I act in a free situation where government not forcing me to behave this way? And so we like to play a lot of the hypothetical mind games. Well, in a libertarian or an anarchist society, without a government forcing you to behave in a certain way, how would we handle this situation or how would we deal with X? And we like to play those, you know, like little thought, do the thought experiments because, you know, you would because without a government, without some overlord shaking his fist at you and pointing a gun metaphorically at your head, how would we behave? And I like that uh, analogy between, yeah, okay, if we weren't artificially suppressing these disease states with powerful uh, big guns, yeah, with with powerful (laughs) pharmacological (laughs) agents. Right. You know, how would our how would our body naturally handle this? Because I sit there and I think, okay, well, the pharmaceutical industry hasn't been around forever. It's, you know, recent phenomenon. So what you're telling me somehow without all these drugs that people somehow were just dying off left and right. Or I I have a feeling that they were actually probably in much better health overall than what we are today. Uh, I was fascinated to hear, I listened to an interview with uh, Michael Saylor yesterday, and he said that, and again, I don't know 
the base roots of the statistic, but that in Roman times, the life expectancy was something like 72 years. And then in the dark ages, it dropped to 30 something years. And he was making the point he was making a point about civilization and about how you can't just assume that you can retain your gains. Um, but I think, you know, that applies a lot to what's happening right now with medicine too, because it, it is just astounding to me that when you point out the ill health, that's just rampant ill health of the majority of people in the wealthy West, the, the mainstream response to that is always everything but pharmaceutical intervention. You'll hear about, and, and even stuff that, you know, you'll hear about the crappy food and you'll hear about problems with the water and the air and all that stuff. Although not when it starts to get into anything that the government might be doing to the water or the air. But, uh, but no one, you know, it's like completely off limits to ever talk about, well, could there be something to the fact that people have been generations and generations of increasing medication the idea that that doesn't build up in the system, uh, that we didn't inherit some downstream epigenetic effects of whatever vaccines our mothers received, and then that our children, even if they're not vaccinated, are receiving whatever downstream epigenetic effects of what we received. And that's just vaccines. That's not even all these other heavy drugs. Right. And, uh, you know, touching back, going, circling back to something you said earlier, too, about the side effects, which aren't side effects, they are effects of the drug. (laughs) And in as much as possibly they work on a physical level, as you stated, on the psychological, emotional level, they often almost always carry a negative impact with that. So it's like, yeah, sure. Take the Accutane. You're going to have beautiful skin. You might want to kill yourself, but you know, right. you're going to have beautiful skin. So like that, and then they list off those side effects. Yeah, sure. You, you know, do this. You, you could, you could, you know, want to self-harm or whatever, or shoot somebody, go in a fit of rage, go postal, but you know. Right. <laughs> uh, at, at least maybe you, you won't have gas so much. Exactly. Well, yeah. And, you know, and I think there's an extent to which sometimes in our culture, people think they're okay with that choice. It's like, I'd rather be broken on the inside than the outside. And because of this emphasis on appearance, that's so much a part of our culture and this emphasis on looking young. And when you look at when Hanuman was practicing in the early 19th, mid 19th century, and you look at uh, in India, homeopathy is very much a mainstream form of medicine, partly because it's really cheap. I mean, that's the thing about homeopathy can't do everything. It cannot reattach a limb, but there, it the the depth of what it can do when the healing process is supported is truly astounding. And so, for people that aren't in the way of the process because they're uh, they, they don't have the resources to be in the way of the process and they can just take the remedy and move forward with the healing. What Hahnemann would observe and what you see in places like Africa or India is that people end up with a lot more really kind of egregious, obvious, superficial, functional disease, which then can resolve because there is... not the resource or the culture to immediately go and focus on trying to have perfect skin. They're just, 
there isn't money to go solve that problem. Yeah. So nobody does. Right. And so then if you go to treat it with a healing modality that's cheap and easily available and expressive, it can be healed. Because it hasn't been packed in. Yeah. And that's what uh, struck me. So, you know, I'll talk a little bit about my mom's experience because I knew, of course, I knew of you, uh, although at the time I wasn't, uh, and I, you know, I'd interviewed you on the show, but I hadn't really done my deep dive into homeopathy. And this was probably the catalyst for me to start learning more. But last summer, my mom um, had experienced some issues. She initially started off with a kidney stone didn't resolve. She ended up having to, and they couldn't blast it for whatever reason. So they ended up having to surgically remove it. So that was better, except then within weeks later, she started experiencing some severe GI issues um, that resulted in chronic a, you know, chronic nausea. She couldn't keep any food or water down. She was vomiting constantly every time she did try and even the littlest bit of stuff, um, you know, obstructive bowel movements you know, she felt like she was just wasting away, you know, cause she couldn't leave. She couldn't, you know, she just felt sick and all the time, all the time throwing up. And the doctors of course had no idea what was wrong with her. Nothing was showing up on tests. It was a constant pass the buck. So, Hey, she go to her primary care doc or the specialist, they couldn't figure it out. So then she gets sick and they tell her to go to the ER. Well, the ER didn't see anything. And then, but you know, something was clearly wrong. Then they go to the hospital. Well, I mean, it was just a kind you know, back and forth and back and forth for months. And finally it got to the point where she's just like, I, you know, she lost 30 pounds. She goes, not how I wanted to, to lose it. But yeah you know, it would be one thing if the doctors kind of knew what was happening and maybe they could chart a path, but they had no idea. They were just like throwing spaghetti at a wall to, you know, um, well, try this medicine, try this. And actually it turned out one of the anti-nausea medications that she was given was actually making her sick and making Mm -hmm. her throw up. (laughs) And so, you know, they took her off that. Okay. Maybe she got a little bit better. It didn't, didn't cure her. So finally we just, after two months of her basically wasting away, no energy, vomiting, you know, irregular bowel movements, et cetera. I was like, well, let's give Sarah a call. And, um, you know, we paid your very reasonable, entirely reasonable fee. And this was something that I didn't know at the time. But, you know, I was curious. I was like, okay, well, we've got like lots of things going on. She's got the nausea. She's got the fever. She's got the the bowel movements, you know, yada, yada, yada. How are we going to fix all this? This seems like a lot. And after doing the case taking and you, you know, did, did everything, you know, it also, it basically, you know, the way homeopathy works is rather than taking a pill for the kidneys and a a pill for the bowel movements and another pill for the, for the uh, fever, you you basically start off with one remedy for the most part at a time. And it was an $8 remedy that I got at the vitamin shop down the street. I, that's, I was researching where to get it. So paying your reasonable fee and then an $8 remedy. Within a <laughs> yeah. week, my mom was all better or back to, she said back to normal, you know, not just, <laughs> not just better, but back to normal which is yeah. crazy, you know, cause even throughout her ordeal, okay. She had spells. She had times of feeling better, maybe not a hundred percent, but better, but this wasn't better. There's a difference between when you feel naturally and you just feel I'm better. And, and that's what makes homeopathy a little bit tricky too, because when you do feel better, you almost don't attribute it to the homeopathy right. itself. You just feel like, Oh, it just got better. It wasn't the home. It yeah. wasn't the remedy. 
because it wasn't in a way. Yeah. It was your body finally being able to take you to that place. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting about homeopathy is, is, and what I was like, I didn't know at first is, you know, I'm like, well, how's Sarah going to solve all this? I mean, does she need to see our charts or the lab work? Is she, does she need to do blood work? You know, like in, in, in your traditional medicine, you need to take all these tests. You need to, you know, do blood work. You need to get your EEGs or whatever. And you need to do tests and tests and tests and tests. And, you know, let's read the charts and everything. And you didn't need any of that necessarily. And we, we did it remotely. You're in Maine. I'm in Florida. You didn't have to physically see my mom in order to be able to offer her help. And I think a lot of people would find that surprising if you're not used to this. Like, yeah, there's far fewer homeopaths than there are doctors, but at the same time, at least now with our technology, we we don't need it. I just think that's amazing. And I think that should be, to me, one of the big takeaways yeah. from today is how how effective it is, how non-invasive it is, and how affordable it is. Yeah, it's inexpensive. It's effective. It's accessible. I have clients all over the world. And uh, I see people in my office and I see people in Australia. And my practice, no matter where I am, is based here. And Maine is, um, and one of the reasons that my practice is based here is because Maine is a state that has what's called a, a, a health health freedom legislation, and which I actually helped to get passed. And that is a kind of legislation. So one of the things that the American Medical Association did uh, early on, right after the Flexner Report, was get a stranglehold on the definition of the practice of medicine. And so if you go and read your state statute on the practice of medicine, it will describe pretty much anything that is said to cure or treat any symptoms of disease. I mean, so we're talking about if somebody recommends chicken soup for your cold and you are paying them for a consultation. That counts as the practice of medicine. Now, no one's likely to get arrested for doing that. However, we have seen cases where people have had blogs where they've blogged their own healing journey from a serious illness and been accused of the practice of medicine, been accused of treating, for instance, cancer, even though all they were doing was saying, I have followed this protocol and it saved my life and talking about how to follow it. And if they have a paid blog, I mean, usually you can do that stuff for free, but like, you know, heaven forbid you try to be uh, compensated in any way because then the doctors do not like that. And so what the safe harbor legislation does is that it protects people in industries that are not licensed. And one of the wonderfully anarchic things about my industry is that it's not licensed because it is generally considered safe because our remedies are completely non-toxic, is that I cannot, as long as I practice within, so this comes into test uh, test results. I know how to read test results. I'm not allowed to discuss them with patients. Where they are useful to me is if the person comes to me and they're saying, I want to work on my thyroid. And so I might say, well, get your numbers so that you can look at how your progression is with your thyroid numbers. Um, as long as I stay in my wheelhouse in terms of not, not, I do not uh, treat disease. 
officially with those words in quotes, as long as I don't do that, I can't be accused of practicing medicine without a license. And so my practice is based in Maine, but I can be in Costa Rica on the phone with someone in Australia and my practice is still based in Maine. So this is also one of the really amazing and flexible things about this. And once you learn how to use homeopathic remedies acutely for yourself, to, for your family, for your community, um, they're actually really easy to replicate really cheaply. So you uh, are pennies on the dollar for a lifetime of acute care, really. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I just think, I mean, especially compared to, well, she's a, you know, a senior citizen, so she's got Medicare, so technically it's cheap. But, you right. know, if you don't have insurance or, you know, even so, even if you do have insurance, they're so chintzy, you know, you pay, they, they, they still stick you for 20% of the bill most of the time, you know, which if you're incurring hospital costs and everything. So I'm like, so you pay like a one time or a monthly fee or however it is for Sarah, which is, again, mm -hmm. entirely reasonable, and then eight bucks for a remedy right. and that's it. And what you're trying to do too with, with um, what I talked about you expanding your business is you're now trying to empower other people to take their own health into their own hands. And homeopathy is a great tool to do that. And, you know, I've been using that you know, it's been a, it's, it's more of an art than a science and I'm learning my way through, but I, especially with my daughter, who's been able to give sure. me lots of present practice absolutely with it but because you know you don't want them you don't want to have to call the doctor for every sniffle or every fever or every earache you can start to learn how to treat and support this for the most part now they do they they are careful to talk about when you do need to see sure. an emergency doctor but you know tell us about how you're empowering people to take their health into their own hands sure well, there are two ways that I do that. First of all, whenever I'm working with a client and I work with, and when I'm working with a chronic client, uh, I also will send them the remedies too. It's just that sometimes people want them faster and they can go get them unless it's something that isn't as readily available. But when I'm working with my chronic clients in either my sort of chronic treatment or what is more like a coaching platform, which is the healing journey program. Um, so part of that empowerment is about really understanding, understanding your own dynamics of disease. What is, what is going on? What are these patterns? And then when you are in an acute learning to, when you, any time you have an acute and you're in a client, that's always covered. Like my clients can always come to me with their acutes and I'm trying to help you understand how what we're doing and how to do it so that you could do it yourself the next time if you needed to. And then, and then I'm building out this platform of webinars and ultimately there will be courses as well to help people learn how to do this with little or no assistance from me uh, or to just, you know, I definitely have clients who know a little bit about homeopathy, but keep me on as a practitioner for their chronics and also just to check in. Hey, I am seeing this symptom and I'm thinking I want to give this remedy. What do you think? So that aspect, being able to help people understand through the platform of the webinars, through the platform of courses, ultimately, and through the platform of individual consultation, how 
these tools, to me, the sense of freedom and lack of fear that these tools gave me when I, when I had young children and I realized I have so many things at my disposal to do when something comes up at the middle, in the middle of the night. Because it's so rarely the kind of emergency, it's so rarely a true emergency, but there are often situations where you might have a child who's really miserable and you at least want, you want to do something. And to know that you have that at your fingertips, it's, I want everyone to have that feeling. And so I am working to build out uh, a platform where people will be able to gain access either through memberships or, um, through webinar, purchasing webinars or attending webinars, all these different ways to get proficiency with these tools. Yeah. And, and for the most part, we're talking about acutes, uh, you know, like your colds, your fevers, your yes. whatever. I think generally speaking, at least from what I've been reading and what I've heard you say is that yeah. chronic conditions, you probably shouldn't try and treat yourself for the most part. <laughs> right. So I would say, I mean, there are exceptions that prove the rule, but in general, I don't treat myself for chronics. I don't even treat my own family. They see other homeopaths. I think it's chronic cases are much more complex in terms of understanding. Not every symptom is equally important. And when you're dealing with a simple acute, you got an earache, you've got a cold, you've got a flu, you've got an injury, you usually have a few symptoms. And they're all related to what's going on. And you can line them up and do what's called a differential and figure out which seems like the closest match. With a chronic, it is much more difficult to understand what you're looking at. And then you also get into the realm of thousands of remedies, most of which are not available re readily at the store and most of which uh, you won't have familiarity with. So for chronics, it is almost always the case that you really do until you're at least until you're super experienced need somebody else to help with the chronic and uh, and then treating oneself is pretty much impossible chronically because there's just we just can't see ourselves in the mirror it's not the same yeah but you know so whether it's for you or your family and and uh, you know learning how to at least treat the acute illnesses or the injuries as you said because um homeopathy can work with injuries as well Absolutely. um helping to heal bones or cover wounds and everything and mm -hmm. recently uh, a couple weeks ago I, I slept i slept wrong on my neck i had like a big crick in my neck and yep. uh, like I couldn't turn my head to the one to the one side. It was just, you know, I mean, it wasn't like God awful, but it was like, oh, man, sure. all throughout the day. I just like, man, this hurts. And then I remembered, oh, I've got this Arnica cream. Mm -hmm. It was a cream uh, in this yep. case. And, you know, let me try that. And I, I put it on. I tell you what, it was the instant I put that thing on. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, my goodness. It was almost euphoric. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And I could move my head left and right, you know. So, uh -huh. you know, when we talk about, okay, homeopathic, especially for some of these like minor things, cuts and burns, yeah. headaches, uh, aches and pains and things like that. Give me your uh, pitch for why we would reach for a homeopathic remedy versus an over-the-counter remedy. Why should I choose Arnica over Icy Hot or Calendula versus Neosporin or Advil for my headache? You know, what should I be reaching for instead? Right. So 
The reason to reach for homeopathic remedy is because every time you heal something, even a minor thing with the homeopathic remedy, you strengthen the system. You strengthen the ability of the vital force to respond to impingements, to recover and to heal. And so I, I, so I take Arnica, I take Arnica really often. If I've been to the gym, if I've been, you know, skiing, hiking, any, you, that feeling you have at the end of the day and you think, oh, I'm going to be sore tomorrow. I'll take a pellet of Arnica and it's not that I don't have any soreness the next day. It's that the recovery process where I'm still getting stronger through that process of healing from the tissues tearing from working out is still happening, but it's happening faster. And I'm not suppressing any information to my brain about, oh, I might be in pain, so maybe I should nurse this a little bit. Still feeling anything that I'm still getting that feedback from my body, but I'm strengthening my body's ability to heal through it. And so I find that the homeopathic remedy is attending and supporting the process as opposed to subverting the signal to the brain. And so then the body is, you're integrated with your healing process. Mm -hmm. So for me, for example, like I don't get headaches all that often, but when I do, I wouldn't call them a migraine, but like, like they, they hurt, like, like, Oh my God, like they like, and they don't go away. Like I can't sleep it off. Like I can with some other illnesses. I, if I go to bed with a headache, I wake up with a headache, you know, and I take Advil, it goes away. What should I, I mean, and if that's your only symptom, like I have a headache, I don't have any other symptoms. How do you know what remedy to take in that situation? I've got a headache. I want it to go away. What do I take? Usually it's just Advil, but like, what which what homeop is there a go to homeopathic remedy you should take for that or is it situational? Yeah, so headaches are one of the most challenging because there are so many different kinds of headaches and there are so many different dynamic states in which headaches show up that there are kind of go to remedies that are the first ones to think of Nat Muir is often a go-to to think of for, for, um, for headaches. And uh, Arnica can be a go-to to think of for headaches. There are Nat Sulf can be a go-to. There are remedies that can be go-tos, but it does really depend on what the dynamic pattern of the headache is and, and, to, and what it's about. So a chronic headache situation is there's a dynamic, there's a susceptibility in the system to a chronic headache. And that susceptibility can be healed. Headaches are one of the more challenging things to move through, but it can be healed so that instead of dealing with the recurring pattern of the headache, the headaches are less frequent or less severe over time. It doesn't mean that you can't ever take an Advil. And I will definitely tell people it is okay to go for a supportive medication. Sometimes we need, uh, you know, sometimes we just need a little help to get through. Sometimes you do need to cut off that signal because you need to function. But the idea of healing it with a remedy is that you can reduce the frequency at which you need to do that. And so, so it depends, I would say, and I will do a webinar on this soon, it will be coming up. There is a class of remedies called cell salts. And 
they are very useful for they're a little bit different than other kinds of homeopathic remedies. They're almost more like vitamins. They work much more on the, on the material sort of level of things. And they are really useful for just supporting a natural process that's moving through. For instance, uh, uh, growing pains and menstrual cramps, often the cell salt is sufficient for that because it's just a natural process and it just needs a little encouragement. And so this the cell salts can be useful for recurring headaches and they're also extremely gentle. So I am going to do a webinar on those. There are 12 basic ones and then a combination called bioplasma and there actually are another 12 too but most of mostly we talk about the first 12. But then I mean also headaches can be, you know, all sorts of weird little remedies might actually be the magic for for a headache. So that 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 one's not simple. My husband gets migraines much less frequently than he used to, but he still does get them occasionally and his homeopath, who's my homeopath, uh she and I working on it together, we've never been able to 100% you know, get them to go away and so sometimes right. he'll just go for an Advil and and then, it, but then again, on the, on the same, on the flip side of that, I bet most pharmaceutical pills that you would take probably wouldn't solve it a hundred percent either. I think migraines are hard, even in the pharmaceutical world where a lot of the pharmaceutical pills don't solve it either. Um, and then right. again, no. And yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So then uh, in terms of like a fever. Yes. Thinking back to one of the recent times when my daughter was sick and she was spiking like a 103 degree fever and I'm yeah. trying to you know, figure out the right remedy and she's miserable and my, and it's a stressful situation, you know, when your child is sick and crying out and then, you know, I'm dealing with my husband who, I mean, he's more or less on board with this, but at the same time he wants to give, he's rushing to try and give her the the children's Motrin or whatever, because he thinks we need to bring that, that fever down right away Mm -hmm. because otherwise she's not going to be able to sleep. And if you can't sleep, you're not going to be able to heal. So where is there a, I don't want to say who's right and who's wrong, but right. you know, maybe, it, you know, how would you approach that? And, it, you know, was, is there a happy, is it might, maybe is there a happy medium to that? Maybe neither of us is right. Neither of us is wrong. Maybe there's a middle ground to reach sure. that. I mean, it didn't seem like otherwise she was severely sick, but she was clearly suffering. And sure. You know, does the homeopathic remedy take too long to fix that? In the meantime, she needs to get better. Like she needs to sleep. It's midnight, you know, how, what's that approach? How would you approach that? Yeah, well, so it, this kind of thing is really circumstance dependent. I have a very high tolerance for uh, a fever, for a, when I had the shingles, I had a crazy case of shingles, it lasted eight weeks. Um, and I, knew that that was part of a very specific healing process that I was going through after my cancer treatment. I have a really high tolerance in someone who is very vital. So for the most case, healthy kids, very vital. Those high fevers, kids don't spike those high fevers anymore because they're not as healthy a lot of the time. Like the ability to really have the body pump that glutathione up, kill that thing and get rid of it. That's what a fever does. Now, with that said, I we all have recognized a state where somebody is so exhausted from the process of 
you know, when I'm dealing with a fever, even a very high fever, uh, and I'm giving a remedy for that, I want to see it spike hard and then fall off. I do not want to see a sustained fever. The time when you might see a sustained fever would be in a child who has been in an extremely suppressed state. And so the fever is actually a chronic healing process. That can be a sustained fever. That can be a much more challenging situation. But for the most part, with a homeopathic treatment of a fever, I would expect to see the fever spike and then come down. And I would not, I would, I hesitate to give antipyretics, but I would never say never if there was a situation where you are just, you know, where everybody's exhausted, there can be a time to support that. So I try not to be too doctrinaire because I think that's one of the things that, one of the things that can sometimes scare people away from more natural healing modalities is that they feel that they can't, that it's all or nothing. And that can be a big shift going into a whole different kind of medical paradigm. So I am not, I'm not too doctrinaire in that way. So speaking of alternative other alternative healing modalities and i think that's where i think hopefully we're starting to really give people a greater understanding of what homeopath homeopathy actually is because i think a lot of people just lump it in with your general alternative medicine they don't actually know what it is oh yeah just give an herb or a tincture or you know uh essence or something you know they, they, but they don't really know what it is but you know there are other alternative healing modalities i mean you could think of like acupuncture, acupressure, then I talked about naturopathy, there's energy healing, there's, you know, light, UV light, etc. How would you know, obviously, you're biased, but you know, overall, how would you rank homeopathy compared to other modalities? Which is it always your, your first choice? Or maybe maybe you think, hey, maybe this person doesn't need homeopathy, maybe they need to go do some yoga to reduce some stress, or maybe they need to lose weight and eat a better diet to improve their joints. Yeah. So I am biased towards homeopathy as the foundational tool in most healing programs. Some people don't respond to it and or else maybe the remedy that they need just hasn't been discovered yet. But, you know, not not everybody responds to homeopathy, but I love homeopathy as the foundation for uh, chronic healing processes it's not always the only or the primary thing that somebody might need. I definitely will recommend any number of those other options for somebody who is dealing with, especially if you're dealing with something mechanical. Uh, I definitely suggest myofascial release a lot. I definitely suggest acupuncture a lot for not at the same time. So some of these, particularly something like acupuncture, highly energetic, I would say work with the homeopath and then give it a couple weeks and then go see the acupuncturist, give it a couple weeks, go back to the homeopath. Don't see them on the same day. You know, also with chiropractic can be pretty intense energetically. Don't do it on the same day, but these things do complement each other. And, you know, a good diet's always better than a not good diet. And 
you know, I think weight loss, so weight loss is something that comes up sometimes in my practice. I get a lot of calls about weight loss. And what I always try to say about weight loss is if you're having a really sticky issue losing weight, there are multiple things going on in that dynamic. Some of them are physical. Some of them are, you know, metabolic on a, on an energetic level. And then some, there is a mental and emotional aspect to that. And so if you want to heal from weight retention, there is usually all of those layers have to get addressed and no one practitioner can bring all of that to the table. You've got to find the optimal diet for yourself. You've got to find the optimal exercise program for yourself, but you also have to address, well, what are the susceptibilities that are keeping my, because a lot of people will be, they they can't lose weight. So what are the susceptibilities that are keeping your metabolism from effectively uh, integrating and then getting rid of what you don't need, all of those pieces of the puzzle. So uh, I am always open to, you know, referring out and learning more and working alongside other practitioners. Yeah. So I want to start kind of wrapping this up. I know I, yeah. I, we've gone long and, and I, yeah. I knew we were going to because I'm just so fast. I'm just so fascinated by this topic. And I hope that I'm starting and that we have started to uh, pique other people's interests as well. But I want you to give us, if you can, give us a, a really great success story, maybe a heartwarming story of somebody, somebody's case that you helped to heal that really showcases the healing power of homeopathy. Yeah. So I have to be very delicate with this because of the confidentiality issue with my clients. So, um, and I would say to anybody that's listening to this, thinking about being a client, I when I discuss my cases with other practitioners, they're of course fully anonymized, just like any other uh, any other practitioner would do. In terms of when I'm talking to the public, I will only ever talk about cases where I have permission to talk, explicit permission. And so uh, I tend to use the cases where I have testimonials. And so I have a couple of testimonials one is somebody who is in his 60s and he has struggled had struggled with insomnia his whole life since he was i can't remember 11 or 12 it was a whole life thing for him he was stuck in this pattern that had really you know and he was doing everything right in terms of the lifestyle stuff very coherent strict diet for himself, knew what worked for his body, paid attention to all of the kinds of factors in terms of his lifestyle and his circumstances. And he just could never, even, you know, even including adding in meditation and yoga and all the practices to try to make sure this nervous system was wound down. He never could beat this issue of not being able to fall asleep and then waking up really early and not being able to fall back asleep. And through the course of what actually turned out to be a relatively short amount of time, and this is what I mean, you know, sometimes it doesn't take as many months as years of the issue. I was able to very clearly see that the this situation had started for him at a time in his life when something 
traumatic had happened that didn't appear to be that traumatic. It wasn't something that somebody else would look at and say, this is clearly a horrible trauma. But for him, his experience of it was that the world was not safe and secure in a way that he had believed it to be. And it was very startling how he learned that and um, had to do with ending up at a new school really suddenly. And from that time on, this was completely imprinted in his system that there was this lack of ease in this place and it would show up when he was trying to get to sleep. He wasn't aware of it. That wasn't the story running through his mind. But it was one remedy, and I can't off the top of my head remember which one, but it was one remedy that went to the heart of that dynamic pattern, like what specifically was going on with his insomnia, but with the etiology, the origin of this particular kind of experience, ailments from this kind of experience. And it was instantaneous for him that he had dramatic improvement, which continued with adjustment to the remedy and, you know, got to the point where he is someone I check in with occasionally, but he's not in regular care at all. We, he just has a, tells everyone about me and wrote me a glowing testimonial, but doesn't need further homeopathic care because it was really the only thing he had going on. And, uh, you know, and so that's somebody that's in his sixties where he'd had this thing his whole life. He tried everything. And so at that point, most people would say, well, I mean, I'm looking at 50 years of this, but you know, he was willing to try something else yeah. and, uh, that, and it worked. that's, that's amazing. That, that really is. That's a, that's a great, that's a powerful story. And I hope maybe sharing the story about my mom too, um, yeah. because that looks like a messy situation superficially like this. There's a lot going on here. How, how are we going to mm-hmm. disentangle this? Uh, this is going to take forever, yada, yada, yada. And yeah. yet, uh, within a, day or two she felt better and then within a whole week she said I was back to normal and she was I mean yeah your mom's case was so amazing because she was really very afraid I mean this she'd been so bounced around that she was in this situation where they were basically telling her this is the level of life that you can look forward to because we can't find anything wrong and we're right about everything. Therefore you're fine. And so she, and I had was totally comfortable with this. She had a lot of doubts. She was like, how can you possibly have anything in your toolkit when none of these people have anything in their toolkits, but she was willing to try it and, you know, give it the, you know, she gamely went for it. And to have that experience of seeing how deep a single remedy can go. And that, as you say, that's a very mainstream remedy. I mean, that the remedy that she took was one that you use all the time in acutes for certain types of coughs. Uh, it's extremely headaches. It's an extremely common remedy. And, and even when she had some symptoms in the hospital, which we haven't talked about, I remember talking to you over text and thinking, this is, I, I know what this is and I know what the remedy would be. Um, those, that was a remedy that wasn't as readily available. Yeah. So, but it was just, you know, it was so crazy because the doctors had this arrogance that it was like, we can't, we don't know. 
And it was and they were about a, ready to so operate. One one team wanted to operate and do surgery because they thought there was a blockage or at least do exploratory. I don't know, but the, and then yeah. the other another team said they didn't want to, which is probably good. And and you know, yeah. it turns out, oh hey, we didn't need that surgery after all. Thank you. Thankfully, thankfully yeah. there was a team that was hesitant enough that they didn't want to do it because there was mm-hmm. one team that said, yeah, we need to operate, and she would have Let's had to do go that, under yeah. the knife. So all right, well, the name of the yes. show is what can we do? So. Um, Tell us in your mind uh, to take control of our health or anything in general of life. Yes. What can we do to survive and thrive in this new world that we find ourselves in? Yes. I love how much there is that we can do in this realm. Homeopathy is in the public domain. The FDI, FDA is busy trying to make it more difficult to get remedies, but it's pretty hard to shut down homeopathy because of what it's made of and how it's made. Homeopathy is in the public domain and it is such a powerful tool that you really can learn to use for yourself for acutes and you can get a professional uh, on essentially on retainer to support you for any kind of issue for very, very affordably. And so that's a big piece of something that we can do that takes away the power of it takes away the power of fear of the system that so many people feel stuck in. People will feel like, how am I going to find a pediatrician that I feel like I can be safe with? And if you can change that balance of power so that even if you have a pediatrician, they're a resource to you if you need them, as opposed to your only option when something's wrong then you can get whatever benefit a pediatrician might be able to offer you. I mean, my kids used to have a wonderful pediatrician who no longer does pediatrics, but I remember once calling her when Wallace had a really severe headache and fever, and he actually had a loss of vision in one eye, and he was little, and that got a little scary, and I called her, and she was able to say to me, and I don't even know how many doctors will say this now, but she was able to say, that's that's not an alarming symptom in a fever. Sometimes you'll get some occlusion of vision. Well, that was something where it was helpful to have her to be able to call, but it isn't the balance of, I always feel like it's really important to have the balance of power with any professional that you're working with be a dynamic flow. We're on the same side of the desk. I don't want somebody lording their authority over me and I wouldn't ever do that to somebody else. So I think, and that I think is probably part of our proclivity given the libertarianism. Um, This is a big thing that we can do is to learn to use these tools, to have them on hand, to learn how to help other people use them. Um, It's, it's such a simple and such a powerful thing. Yeah, And I hope, I know we didn't explicitly talk about it, but I think we, we touched on a lot of things where I think people can get the idea of how prolific this system is like it can treat a lot of things and and I know I asked you and or told you one of the questions you should answer in your upcoming webinars well what can it treat and I know it's probably easier to yeah. talk about what it can't treat but I think people have no idea I think people have no idea exactly what homeopathy can do and what it can yeah. treat it's not limited to just like a few things it is extensive yeah. So why don't you go ahead, just plug what you need to plug and we'll get out of here. So sure. I know you've got an upcoming webinar, you've got a sub stack, you've got your professional business. Uh, give us some plugs and it'll be a, yeah. it'll be available on the show notes page to libertyalliancenetwork.com slash what can we do. Um, I'll have all this listed for you. So uh, give us your plugs and we'll get out of here. 
Absolutely. So the two best places to reach me are at my website, which is innerchomeopathy.com. And that's, uh, I know you're going to have that up there, but it's I-N-N-E-R-S-E-A-H-O-M-E-O-P-A-T-H-Y.com. So that's innerchomeopathy.com. That's my practice. That's where you can find me. The other place that's really good to get connected, whether you pay to subscribe or not, but I recommend that you pay because it's not very expensive and it's really good, is my Substack, which is the big at large, T-H-E-B-I-G-A-T-L-A-R-G-E. The big at large is my Substack. And I use that for both my writing and also for I have a homeopathy channel within that where um, not only do I share tips and tools, but I also will share promotions for any of my events. And if you are a paid member, you get a discount at any of my events. And, um, you know, that will be ongoing as my materials build out. So there will be a webinar coming up. Uh, I think it's the end of the month and get on that Substack. Uh, and this is going to be a great intro webinar. We're really going to talk about a lot of the things we talked about today, but kind of drill into the structure of what's homeopathy, why do you need it, and why is it easy for you to get it. So look for that on the Substack, and that'll be coming up the end of the month. And when, and when you've got a firm date on that, I will certainly send out an email yes. promoting it. Um, we have an idea of when it's going to be, but uh, yeah, let you firm that up. So yeah, Sarah, I've, the yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope anybody who's listening, I know we went, went long, but I really think this is such an important topic. I think it's crucial that we take our health back, learn how to navigate our own health, not turn it over to the, this power structure that we can see is does not have our own interests at heart. Um, and I hope anybody who's listening was able to take something away from this, learn something, and hopefully it will fascinate you uh, the way it has fascinated me and, and encourage you to dive deeper into this really powerful uh, practice and modality. So yeah. Sarah Thompson, thank you so much for joining us. And we will, uh, I'm sure, probably talk to you again soon. Well, thank you so much, Haley. It's been great.